everybody. Welcome to the Banyan Books podcast. My name is Ross McKeechee, and today we are in conversation with Suzanne Simard. So delighted to have her here. Before I get into her formal introduction, I'll just make our usual Banyan announcements. First of all, although we have people joining us from around the world in the Banyan Books community, uh, the the physical location of Banyan Books and Sound in Kitsilano and Vancouver is on the traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Banyan Books is in its 50th year as an independent local bookstore, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. So please support Banyan Books. Um, Every purchase that you make through Banyan helps to support these kinds of wonderful uh, free programs like the one today. So you can visit our website, banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. You can make orders over the phone or you can come in in person if you're in Vancouver. The store is open every day of the week, seven days a week. Now, our amazing guest today, Suzanne Simard, a BC native. Suzanne is a professor of forest ecology at the University of British Columbia, a pioneer on the frontier of plant communication and intelligence. She has been hailed as a scientist who conveys complex technical ideas in a way that is dazzling and profound. Suzanne's discoveries have influenced filmmakers such as James Cameron, who drew from her work to create the tree of souls in his film, Avatar. Born in the Monashi Mountains of British Columbia to a family lineage of rugged loggers, Suzanne grew up as a child of the forest with a deep connection to nature. She went on to attend UBC and then to complete her PhD in forest sciences at Oregon State University. Before beginning to teach at UBC, she worked as a research scientist at the British Columbia Ministry of Forests. Suzanne is known for her work on how trees interact and communicate using below ground fungal networks, which has led to the recognition that forests have hub trees or mother trees, which are large, highly connected trees that play an important role in the flow of information and resources in a forest. Her current research investigates how these complex relationships contribute to forest resiliency, adaptability and recovery, and it has far-reaching implications for how to manage and heal forests from human impacts, including climate change. Suzanne has over 200 peer-reviewed articles. She's presented at conferences around the world and communicated her work through interviews documentary films, and TED Talks. Her TED Talks have over 10 million views worldwide. Today, she is here in conversation about her instant New York Times bestseller titled, Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest. It's a fantastic book. And the book was released in May 2021, and it's currently being adapted into a feature film produced by Amy Adams and Jake Gyllenhaal. Finding the Mother Tree is a moving story of discovery and struggle, which beautifully weaves together Simard's personal life journey with her scientific discoveries and love for the forest. 
During her rebirth after cancer, Suzanne founded the Mother Tree Project. The guiding principle of this project is retaining mother trees and maintaining connections within forests to keep them regenerative, especially as the climate changes. To learn more about this work, you can visit mothertreeproject.org.org. Banyan Books community, please join me in warmly welcoming Suzanne Simard. Suzanne. Thank you, Ross. It's such a great honor to be here. We're really delighted to have you here. Really, we are. Thank you. Thank you. It's my, it's my pleasure. I've always wanted to have a book in Banyan Books because it's such a wonderful bookstore. And I've gone, you know, visited it since I was like, first went to Vancouver when I was 17. So yeah, it's, it's, an, it's a jewel really is yeah okay <laughs> now this book uh, um it's a beautiful book and i was saying to you before we started i was really surprised i mean you come from a science background but this book it's it's like you've been it's like it's not your first book it's so beautifully written and you so beautifully weave in um the science the hard science with your life story and you really bring alive the bc bc's beautiful nature um the first thing, when I open the book, you have this quote from Rachel Carlson. Um, and she, the quote is, but man is a part of nature and his war against nature is inevitably a war against himself. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, Rachel Carson was, you know, she was a paradigm shifter of her time. And um, she... I admired her. She brought to the public eye what was going on with pesticides in the, you know, evolving industrial agricultural revolution in the 1960s. And um, she wrote about it eloquently and heartfully. And ironically, you know, she, she passed away from breast cancer, which, you know, could have been from the very thing she was fighting, but she fought to the very end. And, um, but, you know, it, the irony is that, yes, this, this thing, some of these things that we do in our environment, you know, like um, harvesting too many forests, you know, pumping fossil fuels into the environment through the combustion engine, um, you know, it, it, it's catching up to us in a lot of ways. And we're experiencing this right now in real time um, with the heat dome that we're, you know, living through, the fires that we're living through um, in Western North America, you know, the changes in weather patterns that we're witnessing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we've brought it on ourselves. These are human caused, um, but that also means that they're human solvable. Um, and I think that is one of the messages that I, I wanted to bring in the book is that there are, there are solutions to these problems. We, we, we need to get together our collective genius, our political will, our public will, our science and art and, you know, our great thinkers and, uh, and everybody being involved in part of the solution. And we, and we, I believe that we can overcome this. Um, but we have, we're in a wake up call right now. And, um, and Rachel Carson was, you know, she was a clarion call for, for what came down the road for us. And, and I hope that, um, you know, I hope that we can 
find the wisdom in us to and, and look at the science and look at you know the passion around people people are passionate about this they want a better future for themselves and for their children and coming generations and and so there's definitely the will is there and and i believe that we have the intellect and the science to carry for us forward as well thank you now this uh this book it's it's your life story and and it's a beautiful story it starts with um you as a young woman and, and you keep you you keep bringing back the memories of your upbringing can you tell us a little bit about your fa- you have a, a storied family history that has a relationship to the forest with logging and everything can you tell us a bit about your family history yeah, for sure. I mean, I, this this is just really what I wanted to, when I wrote the book, I wanted to embed the very questions that I asked, you know, about forests, about improving how we interact with forests, embedding it into my, in my family history, into my ancestry, because I came from a place in the forest. I came from this logging family. And so my family um, on my father's side, emigrated from France to Quebec and, you know, logged in the, you know, in, in the Canadian shield for, for, for a while um, and then decided to move West um, in the late 1800s. They settled in Saskatchewan for a while and then it was too cold. So they headed West. Um, And it was ironic because they, they thought they were going to go to California and they, um, took a train um all the kids and my great-grandfather and and his brothers um west thinking they were going to land in california and they opened up the boxcar doors and the sun came shining in and they thought we're here and they jumped out of the boxcar into snow up to their up to their eyebrows and they were in enderby bc (laughs) (laughs) and they loved it so much that they stayed they abandoned the idea of california um i think they were also interested in in the gold rush rush at the time but they uh and certainly my um my great-grandfather did end up going to the yukon and and being partly a miner as well but for the most part they were horse loggers, and so they settled in the Shuswap River area near Mabel Lake. And all of my my great grandfather and all of his brothers, and my grandfather and all of his brothers, and my dad and all of his brothers were horse loggers. Um, and so they would go into these interior rainforests, and they did selective logging, and everything was done by hand, starting with the crosscut saw, and then moving on to the crosscut chainsaw, to then you know eventually the chainsaw. But it was always um, very carefully done. Um, my grandfather was very much uh, um, understood the forest and he talked about the spe- he knew the species and he and they were selecting white pines um, at first and then later cedar uh, cedar poles and and he would my my dad would talk about how grandpa would go up into the forest and make a map for the day and he'd say okay we're going to cut this tree down like the whole you know it took a day to, to cut down a tree and and it was all very carefully done when I went up there as a little kid to, you know, to participate, be part of this logging show. It was, um, the forest was a regenerative place, right? These little gaps that they created in this rainforest were full of hemlocks and Douglas firs and cedars. They were just like booming back to life. And, and that's when I understood the forest as, a, as this incredibly resilient 
place. Um, and that really, that is what um, was in my blood and bones. That's how I saw the forest as this entire, this connected, regenerative, pulsing place. Um, and, and of course that, you know, shaped my career as I, as I became a forester myself, as you mentioned, um, I went to UBC Forestry and I entered into the profession of forestry, but that was at the time when clear-cut logging was really taking off. And so that's, you know, from there developed my career. <laughs> right. But that's the background. Right. Yeah. And, and in the book you talk about, and everybody, please read this book. It's, it's not only a beautiful story, it's very informative and it really inspires you to connect with the forest. Like last night after I finished, I went out and, and I just lay down in the forest. I was just so inspired by it. Um, you, you made a promise. You, you ran into some, an issue with these young seedlings that weren't taking. And you knew there was, there was some, in, you had this intuitive understanding based on your upbringing and your connection to the forest. Can you tell us a bit about that? And then about, you made a promise. You made a promise to the trees. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I came from this incredibly rich, you know, selective horse logging background into industrial logging. And that was at the time when Mirrors Island was being, you know, protests at Mirrors Island were occurring over clear-cut logging, you know, clear-cut logging at that point on the coast had really taken off. It was getting started in the interior forests. I worked in the Lillooette forest area in the Lillooet Mountains. And um, so these are, you know, just outside of Pemberton, outside of Vancouver. It's a very steep mountainous country. Uh, the Lillooet Nation lives there. It's their territory. Um, and um, we were, the, the company I worked for, their, you know, what they did is they clear cut. They took the whole forest down. Um, and then and then my job was as a civil culturalist was to go back and try to reforest these places, these places that there were, you know, basically no trees left. They took everything. It wasn't selective at all. It was just select everything, take it all. Um, and that was, you know, all about making money, right? It was making money for the companies and um, meeting the allowable annual cut that the province set forward that, you know, that was basically, you know, trying to, you know, convert our old growth forest to a working forest to basically a province of plantations. And so I was, you know, looking at these old forests and looking at these plantations and going, these things do not match up, right? That we we're growing back, you know, single species uh, plantations out of these, you know, places that have mo so much diversity, so much species diversity. And the seedlings weren't, weren't doing well. They were yellow. They were not connected connecting to the soil and that got me started right and I always was a lover of soil from as a kid I used to eat dirt all the time I loved soils when I went to university I you know I now I you know I, that is one of the focuses of my work um, but so I it was a natural thing for me to start thinking about the soil and why were these trees not getting what they needed you know they were yellow which meant they weren't getting the nitrogen that they needed and so I just started I started on that right I started started slowly through my career piecing this thing together um, with things that people weren't really thinking about at the time. You know, why would a tree not be connected to the soil? And that led me to understand about these fungi that actually all of our trees associate with, these mycorrhizas that they depend on, um, that actually are the great connect 
boundaries between the photosynthetic leaf area of the trees and the whole, you know, cycles in the soil, the nitrogen, phosphorus, water, carbon cycle that are driven in the soil by this photosynthate and the mycorrhizal fungi are what connect those two amazing processes together. And so I was able to, you know, figure out that that was part of the problem. Right. And and you and you were you made this promise. Made yes, this and promise. I made a promise. I made a promise to figure it out, um, and I devoted my whole career to that. And and I continued to make promises um, as I learned more and more. Um, you know, I promised those seedlings I would I would learn how to do a better job. Eventually, I promised. Um, when I got breast cancer and I was treated with Taxol from the yew tree, I promised the yew tree that I would figure out how, you know, how does it produce that Taxol and what does an intact forest do for that production of Taxol? How can we, you know, protect those medicines that the forest naturally produces for us, uh, for, for itself? It turns out that Taxol is a, a defense enzyme that yew trees use for themselves, but it also works with us to help defend against illnesses and um so i made promises to the yew tree and i continue to make promises every day that i go to the forest to try to help and you know i it's it brings me incredible joy and enrichment in my life so yes and you talk about also this instinct you had to listen this is a, a short quote from the book you said my instinct has always been to listen to what living things are saying we think that most important clues are large, but the world loves to remind us that they can be beautifully small. <laughs> so how has that instinct served you in your whole life's work? You know, yeah, I mean, extremely well. Um, so, um, you know, we, we tend to look at things that are like the scale of us, right? Like uh, we were able to, you know, observe the above ground part of the forest and the leaves and the trunks of the trees. And, and, and we, and, you know, I love it. I'm sure, you know, everybody who <laughs> lives in, in around forest loves that, you know, we get great enjoyment. We get great spirituality. We, we get our health is improved being in these forests, but what's really underlying that, I mean, it's definitely photosynthesis in the trees, but trees are microbiomes, just like we are, right? They're full of organisms, little tiny things that you can't see. So these mycorrhizal fungi, for example, if you pull up a little seedling root, like if you see a seedling growing in the forest or and you pull it up and look at its roots, you can barely see these little fungi that have little threads going off through the soil. Um, and so, and yet this is where, this is, this is absolutely crucial to our own you know, our own lives, that this, that this ancient symbiosis works. It actually was responsible for, for plants moving from the ocean onto the land as those earliest fossil fuel or fossil records showed mycorrhizas were, had already evolved in those plants at that point so that the plants could get the nutrients they needed from this barren rock that was the earth at that time. Um, and so, yeah, this is where the really important stuff is. And not just the mycorrhizal fungi, but like in the soil, there's a whole soil food web of billions of organisms <laughs> that um, of which we know so very little about. But these are the organisms that take that energy from photosynthesis and they cycle 
the carbon, they cycle nitrogen, they cycle, they, they're important in the hydrology, like they're absolutely essential. Without them, we would not be here. Um, so yes, I mean, those wonderfully tiny itsy bitsy things that now we can look at using molecular techniques and microscopes and so on is really, it's just absolutely fascinating. We know so little about it, but it is the new frontier. And this is where, you know, this is where the, these are where some of the, a lot of the solutions lie in, in looking after that incredible food web. Uh, I believe it was Nature Magazine with your, your front page article in 97, when you first published your findings, they called it the Wood Wide Web. Can you tell us what a little bit about what's going on in the wood wide web with mother trees and these nodes and the mycorrhiza underneath? Yes, yes. Um, so, you know, my, my first PhD work um, was inspired by these little yellow seedlings I was seeing in the forest that I was trying, I'd made a promise to figure out what was going on. And I had been noticing as well as a silviculturalist working for government that, you know, and my job was to try to figure out how to grow these plantations, um, that that not only were they not connecting to the soil, they were getting diseased and infested with insects. When, when we took out the native plants, especially the broadleaf trees, the birches and aspens and cottonwoods, and at the time, foresters were really focused on getting rid of these native plants because they viewed them as competitors, competitors for light and water and nutrients. For example, birch grows tall and fast, faster than Douglas fir, and it shades Douglas fir, or shades Douglas fir. And so the thinking was, well, birch is robbing Douglas fir of its light and therefore reducing its photosynthetic rate and its growth rate. And so therefore we need to get rid of it. And so there was this all-out war going on in BC of, you know, herbicides and getting rid of these native plants. And I thought this is what's causing the disease, right? It's, it's actually making things worse. And so I started looking at the connections in the soil. How, you know, are we, I felt we were disconnecting the ecosystem, disconnecting its natural connections. And I'd heard about this work done by David Reed in the UK, who had looked at pine seedlings in the lab that grew together and were affected by a single mycorrhizal fungus. And he saw carbon moving back and forth between them when he labeled one with carbon-14. And I took that idea to the real forest, which was until then had been just done in the lab. And I said, is this what's happening? Is this what we're disrupting, this incredible linkage? And that is what I found. I found that the more paper birch shaded Douglas fir, the more carbon it actually sent straight to Douglas fir to subsidize its losses. And in the spring and the fall, when fir was overtopping birch, when it was leafed out and growing and birch was not leafed out yet, the opposite was happening. You know, fir was sending stuff back to birch carbon. And so I started to see the forest as, well, I, it confirmed my already understanding that the forest was a connected place, but now I could really, I could see it using my isotopes and my experiments and, and demonstrating that this is a complex place where both competition and collaboration are going on. So eventually there was a lot of backlash against this work. There was a lot of disbelief and that these networks existed, that they were important in forests. And so then I later embarked on mapping what that network looked like. And so that's where we just, we went into Douglas fir forest and we just mapped one fungal species out of about a hundred that exist in each forest. 
And we discovered that everything was connected together <laughs> in this incredible network and that the most connected trees were these big old trees, the old, old trees, the ancient trees, the biggest trees in the forest. And it turns out that those trees were sending carbon and nitrogen and water to their neighboring seedlings, helping them regenerate. They were also providing this great network that they were feeding with their own photosynthesis that these seedlings could tap into. And so that's what led us to calling these old trees mother trees. Yeah. So that's a long story to answer that question. <laughs> well, it's it's a beautiful story and, and it's fascinating. Now, one thing that's really interesting to me, you mentioned in the book, you're, uh, you, you're going on a hike as a young woman with your friend, your new friend at that time, Jean. Yes. <laughs> and she mentions the Coast Salish people's understanding of the interconnectedness of the trees. How much influence has uh, Indigenous wisdom from the, the BC Indigenous people or from other parts of the world influenced your work? Now, right now, um, I'm working a lot with Indigenous people. Um, I, I would say up until a decade ago, I was really, I didn't have a strong connection. I mean, I understood and knew Indigenous people. Um, I worked with them. I, I went to school with Indigenous people, friends, um, but I didn't understand the depth and the... Um, I don't know, the, the incredible wisdom of their knowledge until I started working with one particular postdoc, Dr. Teresa Ryan, who is a, a salmon fishery scientist. And she just started talking to me and saying, you know, our worldview is that we're all connected. We're all one with nature, that we're interdependent and that we have these principles of um, things like respect, having respect for plants and trees and water and salmon, um, that the whole relationship is built on respect and reciprocity, which means that, you know, that we don't take more than we need or that what is nature is able to give us, that we only, you know, we, we do what's called an honorable harvest. We, we harvest only what we need. We don't push these ecosystems to the point of collapse, which is what, you know, our modern, you know, economic driver is driving us to do. And that is why we're seeing, you know, this, you know, major problems in our forests, one of the reasons. Um, so, so now, now I'm working a lot with Indigenous people. I actually just went on a 10-day trip with the Kwakwakwa people up to their territory, the Montagila tribe, um, to talk about reclaiming their old growth forests, um, that they really want to get their people back on the land because they've been so disenfranchised through colonialism and the residential school system. And they want to have their presence. They want to have be, be able to carry out their obligations to the forest because they, you know, they were, they are, they, have lived on this land for thousands of years, observed, had their own deep, deep science about looking after the resources. Um, and then that got taken away from them um, with colonization. And so now I'm working with them to try to find ways that we can reconnect, you know, the indigenous people and the, and the settler people to move forward, all of us together in a more regenerative, more holistic uh uh, more sensitive and reciprocal relationship with nature so that we're all, you know, helping nature to recover from this 
past century of of exploitation to to find a better way. So yeah, I am working with them. I'm working with them through the Mother Tree Project, through the Tree of Life Project, through the Salmon Forest, um, and the the connections I'm having have with them is are deepening and richer and more uh, exciting all the time. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm really curious about the relationship between sort of what we might call the uh, Western modern kind of scientific method versus these ancient forms of knowledge and understanding. Did you ever feel um, like you had these intuitions and innate understandings about the forest and, and that interrelatedness, but it, did you ever feel handcuffed by having, by being tied to the scientific method and that industry and government were so dependent on the scientific method? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I eventually was able to articulate that, but it took me a long time because, um, you know, I, I could see, you know, I, I had this intuition, this, this deep knowledge that was grounded in how I grew up in the forest through, you know, just being a child of the forest and observing things. Um, and then when I started to become a, a scientist, I had to, in order to survive and make my way, I had to learn the Western ways, of course. Um, that's the only thing that was available to me. And I didn't really know that there were other ways of doing things. Um, it wasn't part of the curriculum in, in elementary school, in high school, in university. You know, it, that knowledge has been ignored almost very effectively over the last hundred years um, or more and, and more. Um, and so, you know, I, I worked with that Western scientific approach because it has good things about it, right? There are, you know, we've made amazing discoveries with reduction of science, um, but I was soon uh, hitting the wall, you know, in that forests are not, you can't reduce them to the parts and then reconstruct how it works. You can't take a tree and a plant and some soil and put them together and expect the ecosystem to function. It's like you, you can't take two eyeballs and a brain and a skull and say, work like a human being, right? It, there's more to it than that. These are systems that have evolved uh, and all the organisms in them have evolved to be highly complex, um, but they work, they're efficient, they're resilient, um, and they have these incredible, what we call emergent properties, like the ability to cycle carbon, for example. You, you can't, there are things about that that we'll never completely understand, but it doesn't mean that we ignore them because that is actually where the, you know, the incredible um, vitality and resilience comes from is those things that, that, that are of all these parts working together. Um, and so I, in, in trying to publish my work about whole forests, I, I wasn't, I had a hard time doing that in these reductionist science journals because they really want to look at the little parts, the little tiny studies, ripping things apart. Um, and it's, we've made progress, but not, we've missed a lot of the big picture with that. And so now, you know, with indigenous science, it really is not that different than Western science in that it's grounded in observation, it's grounded in experimentation, it's grounded in adaptability, um, it, you know, and it's been carried out over thousands of years of getting to know the land, every intricate detail. When does the salmonberry bloom? How does that coincide with the with the hatch of the fry, the salmon fry in the spring? How does that coincide with the with the hatch of the, the insects that the salmon fry, you know, um, 
the eat, how does that coincide with the production of berries by the salmon berry that we that we can eat? And so they were able to connect all these dots together. Even this below ground network that I, you know, discovered so-called discovered, they knew about it already. They knew that it underlay the forest because and it was essential to the growth of for of trees through thousands of years of observation. And so when, you know, when colonization happened and we came in with our Western science and said, okay, you know, move aside, we're, we've got this now, we're going to figure this out. Well, we didn't, right? We, we, um, we didn't understand the full picture. And, and that is where this whole systems level, holistic level of understanding needs to come in. And that is where we have a lot to learn. You know, we're the Western science is really as, as one Aboriginal woman once said, um, "We are Western science is the little sister of Indigenous science. It's very not nearly as well developed, and, and our learn we have so much to learn to make our our ecosystems, uh, you know, uh, sustainable." You like? Or, sorry. Go ahead. No. Uh, you you your family is so important to you. In your life, your family has been has been huge. Your relationship with your parents, uh, with your brother Kelly, your late brother Kelly, and your and your sister Robin. And in the book, you liken the interrelatedness of the forest to be like a family. Mm-hmm. Can you can you expand on that idea a little bit for us? Yeah, you know. Um, we all know what family is, right? We all know what community is. We all you know, we all come from that. We rely on those connections. And we really, as human beings, I always view myself as just a product of my relationships, of all all my family and friends. And, um, you know, I, I'm shaped by all the people around, but the love that I have for them, the, you know, the conflicts I have with them, like <laughs> the whole thing, right? The whole living experience. And um, as I came through forestry, realizing that foresters were trying were di- about disconnecting them, not seeing forests as social places. They were seeing forests as these inanimate trees, you know, objects that they would plant in rows and then weed out and treat like, you know, like the, like they they were just individuals trying to you know compete with each other. And I was see I saw the forest as a as a as a community as you know interdependent and really ecology is based on it really is about understanding those relationships but we didn't live it we didn't manage it we didn't forestry is not about that it's about is very utilitarian and commodified and about making money and 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 that uh, you know that process in that process we've ignored this familial part of the forest. And there are deep science uh, bases of of this as well. I'm not just spouting off. It's I've investigated this in in using you know all kinds of tools, and I've discovered that, for example, that trees you know trees and plants of all different species in the forest they're interconnected in all kinds of networks. Um, and I could go into great deal, detail about the scientific underpinnings of that, but but they are all connected together. They share resources, even among different species. Within a species, we also know that trees can recognize their own kin and that they favor their own kin. And even an, an old tree, you know, most of its seed is shed in its its immediate neighborhood, and it can recognize which of those seeds are from its its own, like of its own genetic 
stock and it can recognize which ones are of different species or of a different you know have different parents and resources are moved around according to maintaining that whole community to uplifting the 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 community the like vitality of it the diversity of it you know these connections and these complex interactions really are about uh, about building community about building resilient communities and you know I've made lots of analogies to our own human communities, and I think that's an easy way to understand it, right? We look after each other. We have each other's back. And, you know, yeah, we we have conflict as well, and trees do compete with each other as well, but that's all part of the picture. And um, But the important point here is that forests are social places. Trees lo- need their neighbors. <laughs> they live beside each other for hundreds of years. They have evolved ways to communicate and and, uh, and interact and look after each other. I just want to let our, our live community here know, I see that the questions are already starting to roll in. For those of you who aren't aware, you can submit your questions for Suzanne Samard in the Q&A tab down at the bottom of your screen. So feel free to send in your questions and we'll be getting to those in a few minutes. I want to touch on nature's capacity to heal. You you went through cancer uh, treatments and you discovered your own body's capacity to heal. And you also speak a lot in the book about nature's capacity to heal, but also mm-hmm. that there might be limitations to how far we can take that. Mm-hmm. Where are we at with that right now? And what are the big red flags and how do we begin to heal mother nature? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, thinking of forests, I'll just give a little demonstration of how, you know, regenerative these, these networks of forests really are. Um, So here you you have a community of forests um, of old trees, young trees, teenagers, you know, adults, so on. And they're connected together, seeds fall to the forest floor, these little seedlings connect into the networks of the old trees, they get resources, they get a boost in life. And then they, they, you know, they take off, some of them might not make it, make it, you know, if they're in a particularly shady spot or, but, but, you know, a lot of them make it and they, you know, find their way through the crowns of the forest. And, um, and even if uh, they get attacked or infected by some pathogen or insect, um, that there are all these warning systems and aid systems in the forest where trees can communicate with each other about this and they they uh they're able to upregulate their defenses in response to these communications um as i said they recognize they have these all these recognition signals there's all kinds of signaling going on below ground it's like a big internet you could think of it that way and that's what brings resilience to the forest right that's what how the forest regenerates is through all these incredible interactions and ways of communicating between all the creatures and, uh, and so the forest has evolved to do that. It's evolved to heal itself, to recover, to recover from, from disturbances. But like I said, and like you said in the, uh, just now, there is a limit, right? Like the earth has a capacity. Uh, forests have a capacity to absorb 
damage or change or trauma. Um, and, you know, there is a tipping point where when you inflict too much damage that the systems can't recover. You know, if you take away all the forest floor, for example, where all of the insects and worms and nematodes and amoebas are, um, y- y- the cycles stop or they, they're extremely retarded, <laughs> you know, extremely slowed down. Um, and and so yeah, there's a limit. You you can't take off the forest floor and expect the the forest to actually recover. You can't mine down, you know, over extensive areas, removing soil, and expect the forest to bounce back. You know, it takes what we call pedogenic time to recover, thousands of years to build soil and forest floor again. And, you know, and, and this isn't esoteric. We do this all, we actually do this, right? We do it in mining. We do it in agriculture. We do it in bad forestry practices. If, we, if we're too extensive in our disturbance, like building too many roads, for example, and landings or scarifying or, you know, with our machines moving too much forest floor around, we've measured the effects of this, that even in normal logging practices where you have machines on the ground, we're losing about 60% of the carbon in the forest floor just by the act of logging so that that you know that is not irrecoverable damage but it slows things down a lot and that also you know those stocks those carbon stocks are they're the buffer against the stocks in forests and oceans are the buffer against climate change and you know if we continue to deplete it by logging our old growth forests you know our big old growth forests by you know damaging the forest floor it's really hard to recover you can't get back those old growth forests again you can't grow back that forest floor without thousands of years of recovery um so yeah there are limits for sure there are and climate change you know here we're seeing we're in a very you know scary time right now with the fires and the heat dome and um that this is a warning to us <laughs> you know i think we're going to survive this but it's a warning to change course that we need to be more conservative in our practices be more cautious not push our systems to the point of collapse but actually look after them like be good stewards of the environment so yes we so in sum the forest eco- ecosystems the world has incredible capacity to heal it's built that way but we have to be good stewards we have to be responsible and we have to you know be reciprocal meaning don't take more than we need live within our means Wonderful. Can you tell us a little bit about the Mother Tree Project? Yeah, for sure. I'd love to. Um, So, um, yeah, after I recovered from cancer, I started this project called the Mother Tree Project. And this is this is a, the biggest experiment I've ever done. It's growing. I, I, I encourage anybody who's interested, if you want to get involved, you know, we've got lots of capacity for people to become involved in many ways, even as citizen scientists. Um, but what we're doing is we're, we're trying to design new forestry practices uh, that will keep our forests resilient as climate changes. So instead of, you know, clear-cutting, and reducing carbon stocks and planting um, and hoping that these forests will recover and weeding them out. What, what I'm suggesting or what, what our study is doing is testing different ways to keep old mother trees, still take out some 
trees to to meet our needs for housing and so on so it's like selective logging kind of like what my grandpa did um, but leaving old trees and we're trying leaving them in different amounts and configurations in different climatic regions so we have right now we have nine forests each replicated three times so that's 27 forests that are scattered from the u.s border all the way up to fort st james which is north of prince george in all these different climatic regions in Douglas fir forests. And we're trying all these different ways to leave old trees and comparing the effects of that on carbon, the carbon cycle, on biodiversity, and on the regenerative capacity of the forest. And what I'll just give you a hint of what we're finding. We already know, you know, based on only five years of measurements, that that it's absolutely essential to keep these old trees around. That they're the, you know, they're the legacies that boost the next for, forest forward to provide the connections to the past and to the future, uh, literally through their mycorrhizal connections, that leaving old trees in different configurations, I mean, it's going to depend on the climatic area you're in, but they help us keep the biodiversity. So, for example, when you clear-cut log, what we're finding is you lose the lichens in the crowns, obviously, of the trees, and you lose the mosses on the floor, on the forest floor. A lot of the herbs and shrubs will recover, but, um, but there are, you know, whole uh, functional groups of plants that we lose um, and um, and then you know from a carbon cycle point of view we, we we are able to protect a lot of the carbon stocks by leaving a good portion of these old trees and of course they provide seed um, and they naturally regenerate and they protect the seedlings coming up and we've also found that we can even you know, introduce immigrants. So there's a, a lot of talk about assisted migration right now, and we're practicing that in forestry, that as climate changes, you know, trees can't keep up with it, right? They can't move, they can't, they can't adapt that quickly, they can't migrate that quickly. And so foresters are doing this thing where they're actually migrating more, you know, genotypes from warmer climates further north. And so we're doing that in our experiment as well to see how well it works. And what we're finding is that when we leave old trees, especially on stressed sites, that we can increase the survival of those trees is increased by 20 or 30%. And so there's a real synergy there. And so I just think that, you know, and I'm not the only one who's looking at partial, partial retention of old trees. Lots of people have looked at this and have, you know, generally find that this really helpful to do that, to have this more regenerative approach to forestry instead of just taking everything, clear-cutting and extensively. Um, so I could go on about that, but that, that's, the not, that's the core of the Mother Tree Project is, is to continue doing that research. What a, a hopeful and beautiful project. I, I, I feel quite moved by what you're doing. And you. I understand it's, it's a, you've got a kind of a hundred-year timeline. So this is something... It's going beyond your lifetime. It's for yes. future generations. Yes. Yes. And isn't that what we all, you know, as a parent, as a teacher, um, that is the greatest gift I could ever give to myself or to my children or to my students, to, to, to the world, is to leave this legacy project that can be built upon and help find answers. Um, and yes, I mean, every year I have about 20 students that work with me out in the forest, digging up soils, you know, measuring plants, measuring logs and trees. And, and, they, and the students absolutely love it. They immediately connect with the forest, which is an essential part of loving the forest. And 
Um, yeah, and it's their project, right? They're they're full of ideas. What, why don't we look at this? You know, why don't we look at the you know the birds that are you know inhabiting the cavities and the, the snags that that have been created in this forest, for example, right? They they take it and they run with it. And I was I also mentioned that we would like to take this project up the coast. Um, so a number of First Nations have expressed incredible interest in in developing the same project in the coastal regions. So um, we have one site at Malcolm Knapp Research Forest, which is in the Kitsi Nation um, near Maple Ridge. Um, but we're also looking to work with the Kwakwakawat, the Hiltsik, the Simsian, and the Haida people to expand this project so they can find alternatives to clear-cutting, which has been going on extensively in their territories. Um, and so there's a great deal of hope uh, and of their youth also doing the work themselves and finding their, their own way with this as kind of a framework to help them out. Beautiful. Now, uh, we're going to get to some of our, uh, our live audience questions. Um, the first one is from Alma. Alma says, I'm curious about the mycelium network underneath pavement in cities. Do trees in cities have the same network or is it completely disrupted? I'm thinking between the few old growth, growth trees and new trees from one city to another, i.e. do old trees in Stanley Park link with trees in other city parks? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so certainly in Stanley Park, those networks are intact, right? The um, Stanley Park is full, is rich with different species. Um, certainly it's been selectively logged um, and we've had the windstorm, you know, about over a decade ago, which, you know, a lot of trees uh, blew over. But those, those networks are regenerative as well. So they recover. As long as there's living trees, uh, photosynthesis going on, they recover. And it, it takes, um, when a forest has been disturbed, say, say it was clear cut, it takes about 100 years for that, that whole network to recover, all of the species to come back. But it starts right away. So yes, I mean, Stanley Park, all the parks in the city would have these networks. Um, and the more trees and native plants there, the richer that network will be. Um, when you have more exotic trees, or if you just have grass, those networks do simplify down. However, okay, so get to the other part of the question, would the parks be connected together? Well, you know, it depends on how far apart they are. Um, but certainly, for example, if you're in Stanley Park and, you know, there's boulevards of, of trees that go into the West End, for example, and, um, you know, the cedars form and the maples and the yews form are buscular mycorrhizas. And a lot of the, the maples in those boulevards that are, you know, going up, um, up those those streets, um, they would also form these arbuscular networks and they could link together. Um, the, the challenge that they have and what trees have when we just introduce them into urban environments is often the, you know, in construction that the soil is removed, um, that the engineers work with the fill that's remaining, which tends to be like 
you know, it, it's like glacial till. There's not a lot of organic matter in it. And so those trees are at a disadvantage from the start. So, so and a way to enhance those connections between the parks, the natural forests, and the streets is to actually provide real soil for those trees that are planted, especially topsoil or forest floor, where all that's where the living uh, suite of the the food, soil food web is, and so you can you can enhance that ability of the networks to form by by introducing you know good soil and and species that are good companions that actually are able to connect with the trees in in those parks and forests. And I didn't get into this, but there are different kinds of mycorrhizas that associate with different species and different groups of plants. And so you need to match those things up, um, but it's not hard to do. That information is out there. Um, so I would encourage people to do that. And yeah, and thinking about underneath a road, for example, this is another common question I get is, can a tree on one side of a road and a tree on the other side of a road connect together? Well, if there is a, a pathway of good soil underneath, then they will. Yeah, they will connect together. And in time, they're able to do that. Um, but it makes it a lot better if we can provide them with a good foundation to start with. Thank you. The next question is from Angela, who says, as an educator, I was hoping you can speak to our educational system, to how our educational system needs to change to bring about the understanding needed for land-based healing? That's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, and I, I uh, you know, I, I, I'm a prof at a university and, um, and I think that these same ideas are translatable across all section, across all parts of the education system from kindergarten up to the university and beyond. And that is to get kids um, into the forest into these natural ecosystems. Um, if they're disconnected from them, they're gonna remain disconnected and not know how to love them and protect them. And so it's essential, and this is what I do with my students, is I take them to the forest. And I, I take students that from all over the world, some of them have never been in a forest before, they've lived in a city their whole life, and when they get there, I, I get them to just, so I'll, here's, here's a good exercise that anybody can use with their kids. I take them into the forest in Pacific Spirit Park where I teach. And we just sit on the forest floor and lay down. And, and I say, okay, let's just be quiet with these trees for five minutes. And, and at first the kids are kind of fidgety and they're trying to put their phone somewhere and maybe turn it off. And, and then another minute goes by and the fidgeting is still there, but it's calmed down a little bit. And then after another minute, it starts to go quiet. And then the kids open up their senses and they hear the birds. They can hear, you know, the, the squirrel climbing up the tree. They can hear the squirrel chomping away on that cone to get the seeds. Um, they might hear, you know, a, a rodent strug, you know, nestling in the grass, maybe a, a vole or something. They'll hear the water trickling by. Uh, they'll hear their neighbor breathing in and out. They become one with the forest and it doesn't take very long. It's, it's like meditation. Once you lock into it, you're there, right? Um, it's the same with these kids, with kids. They're naturals at it. They love it. And I, um, I know in the 
you know, the 12 or 13 weeks that I teach my course, by the time we get to the end of the 13 weeks where we spent every week going out into the forest, they just want to get back out there. It's in their blood and bones. And so that's when I know I've done my job as an educator is I've helped them connect with the forest. And of course, I wrap, I also wrap around them. I hug them with the information I know, right? I tell them about the networks in the forest. I show them, you know, what they look like. Um, we go on lots of field trips. Um, it, I just, I just, I just, um, I'm like a, an ectomycorrhiza where I hug them with this hyphal network and I say, here, you know, here it is. Take it, learn from it, and and now it's up to you. Um, and and they do, they do it. And I, th- I've even taught little kids in grade one, and they they actually are do just the same thing. You know, I go into these little little, and I take them out in the forest. We lay down on the on the roots and just listen. And they're full of ideas. They're naturals at it. So yeah, I think that. So that's the essential thing: get them out there, get them in the forest. And then teach them about these principles that I that we've learned from our indigenous neighbors, you know, about respect and reciprocity, and uh, you know, about giving and never taking too much, um, about responsibility as well. That we have a responsibility to our earth and to each other to care for this earth, not to exploit it, but to 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 look after it, um, to be sensitive to its needs. <laughs> because it's sensitive to ours too, right? So that is what reciprocity is all about. So anyway, those are a few ideas. Um, they're very fundamental, but it's a good place to start. Thank you. There's a question from Jared who asks, can you speak to the best practices for forest fire management in terms of forest thinning projects? What should we be clearing out of the bush, if anything, and what should stay? How can we promote forest thinning for forest wildfire management while also retaining forest floor biodiversity? Yeah, that's that's a great question. You know, this is such a complex problem. Um, and so I'll just start off, you know, there's some fundamental things that that need to be done. So first of all, when we're under heat waves like this, um, it's hard to stop a fire from starting, right? I mean, if there's an ignition source, when it's so dry, it doesn't matter how much fuel is in the forest, <laughs> there's going to be a fire. But um, but we can reduce the fuel load. That is So, so we need to deal with climate change. In other words, I'm, that's the overarching thing is that until, we've got to deal with that at the same time as we're managing the land. We've got to deal, we've got to decarbonize um, we've got to reduce our fossil fuel reliance and move on to renewable energy. I know it's a mantra, but it's true. You know, unless we do that, we're, we're nothing that else that we're going to do is going to, you know, is going to solve the problem. So then on, on the ground, then, um, as we're dealing with climate change, we also need to do reinstate some of the, and I'll call them Aboriginal ways of, of managing the land, is a rein, reinstate you know, prescribed burning in our forests because that prescribed burning that was done for thousands of years reduced the understory uh, in a very, you know, natural and holistic way Um, because fire itself is a regenerative tool, right? It, It is 
when you burn the forest floor, it actually releases a whole bunch of nutrients that, that thinning doesn't do, right? Thinning doesn't actually burn the needles and the, um, and the mosses and, and the grasses and, re, and remove them and, and release nutrients. Thinning, actually, they're still locked in there even when you thin. So I'd say reinstating prescribed burning has got to be done extremely carefully because we've got people on the landscape. We've got property. Um, you know, we want to protect things, but we can we can very carefully, and that is going to take a lot of people thinking really hard about this, how to do it, but we can do that. Um, and then, you know, in areas around townships where it's hard to, to do prescribed burning or we don't have time to, you know, we've got to act now. Um, then, yes, going into areas where... Um, where there's an understory that has built ladder fuels up to the crowns, that's really dangerous because if a spark starts in there, the fire does just blow ladders up into the crowns of the intermediates and up into the crowns of the big trees, and then it becomes like this, this uh, stand-destroying fire. Um, and so you can remove those fuels and you can thin them out. Um, and I think... Um, you know, that's a, that's a good, it's, it's not a bad practice, it's a good practice. And so I would focus on the smaller trees, taking those out and leaving the, the trees that are old, the old trees, um, with their thicker bark, they've lived through many disturbances, they've got defense, you know, they've already got some defense in them, they've resined over these old scars, they've got defense enzymes, they can, they can survive these fires, whereas the younger, smaller stems can't, and they're the latter fuels. So, L-A-D-D-E-R, by the way. <laughs> um, yeah, so, and communities are doing this. And, and I know in my community of Nelson, there's been a lot of it done. It looks really good. I think they've done a really good job with it. Um, I noticed in some communities that it could be used as an excuse for logging old growth forests, you know, because money has been invested in um, fire smarting communities. So we have to be really, really careful not to be tempted by that, um, not to use an excuse to go and log old forests because they are actually very protective for the communities. Old trees are resistant to fire. Young trees are more flammable. They burn more easily. The other thing we can do is we can introduce more broadleaf trees around our communities. They have much higher water content. They have less resin in them. They don't burn as readily. They're not as flammable. And so, you know, sort of changing the successional patterns of the forest by introducing more broadleaves can be very helpful. Thank you. And, and you mentioned old growth forests. And this is a thank you, everybody who's here live for your great questions. Unfortunately, we can't get to all of them. There, there are many. Uh, we have a last one from Paula, who says, what can we do besides sign, peti sign petitions to stop BC from destroying old growth forests and start to follow more ecologically sound forestry principles? We've been trying for so long and they aren't listening. Yes, thanks, Paula. I, I, I agree. Um, it's very frustrating. Um, you know, the, the, you know, and, and like, just to understand why, you know, there's been the protests at Ferry Creek, there's going to be ongoing protests is my is my hunch. There's one starting up in Revelstoke to, to protest against old growth logging. And those protests arose out of frustration that there's been no action. And um, the, the lack of action is because we kind of got, you know, in 
when British Columbia was settled, um, there were a bunch of commissions that were set forward and the working land base was identified and there was an allowable annual cut that was determined and it's still determined every year. And that allowable annual cut is supposed to be based on the growth rates of the forest, what it can, you know, to be sustainable. Um, but, you know, our forests are we miscalculated. We've pushed our forests to the brink of collapse. And we're seeing that in the fires. We're seeing that in climate change. We're seeing it in the contributions of our forests now becoming carbon sources instead of carbon sinks um, to climate change. Um, so there's all kinds of, in we've lost biodiversity. There's all kinds of indicators we've pushed it too far. Um, but the province has become locked into this this calculation or the or this pattern, right? That they said this is our cut. The cut level has been the same for the last two decades, pretty much. I think it's like 70 million cubic meters a year. Um, and it has not varied very much. It's like, okay, we're doing this and we're gonna stick on this track. I think that the, you know, it is hard to you know, get them off the track. There's a whole infrastructure, there's industries that have developed around that. There's interests in it. There's there's financial interests in the status, maintaining the status quo. People um, have also been told that their jobs depend on it. Well, actually, I would really look hard at that. Some jobs are dependent on it, but not as many as in the past. In fact, we've lost about 50% of our forestry jobs over the last decade due to mechanization. So the jobs argument doesn't really hold water. Um, and so really it comes down to, you know, profit and uh, making money and, you know, tax dollars, I guess. Um, but, you know, we can't sustain it. We're seeing, as I said, the indicators are out there, the fires, the, you know, they're, they're, the big indicators are suggesting that, you know, we're on the wrong track. So how, what do we do? So, you know, we can, we can publish scientific articles. Well, that's easy to ignore. Uh, we can have think tanks. Well, we've had lots of those. We can have, you know, reviews. Well, we've had a lot of those as well and no action. So what are we left with? Well, you know, I feel that myself, I'm, I, as a, as a studier of the forest, as someone who has knowledge of the forest, I've come to the point where I've written this book, for example, to try to get the public to be more aware of, to reveal, you know, what's going on and what we could do better. Um, and I think everybody can take their own approach to do that. But I think that we need to take it. We need to have various ways of, of catching the attention of government to make changes. And that attention is going to have to spread, right? It's got to, it, it may start at Fairy Creek, but it's going to grow. I think it's going to grow. And then once, you know, once there's a momentum, then there'll be an interest in listening to the public. But so, so my advice, I guess, to, to everybody is don't stop, keep the passion up, um, you know, follow your heart, find out everything you can, like get as much information as you can. Like there is really excellent science out there to guide us and to pressure our governments, hold their feet to the fire to, to, do, to do a better job. Um, and it's, it's not just about voting, right? Because um, voting is important, but, but, but even politicians who make promises break those promises all the time. And so we need to hold their feet to the fire um, in whatever way we can do that. So, and it takes all of us, it's gonna take all of us to, to change this course, in my opinion. Thank you. 
Now, you said you, part of what you're doing is you've written this book. And I mentioned at the start that um, this book has been taken on to be adapted as a screenplay for a major film uh, produced by Amy Adams and Jake Gyllenhaal. Can you tell us a bit about that just just before we we finish up and and your hopes for for how this might spread more awareness? Yeah, I I, I have great hopes for this feature film, um, and uh, yeah, at this point we're they're still looking for a director, so they're trying to find a great director. Um, Amy Adams has worked with some of the best directors in the world, and she's going to find the best she can, um, and Jake Gyll- Gyllenhaal as well. And then, and then once they have a director, they're going to get a screen screenplay writer, and they're going to get the best in the world um, and that they can get for this to match with this topic. And then I'm I'm a, an executive producer apparently, <laughs> and so I have a, I have a say in um, in the movie. But what I really want is them to create out of the book their own vision their own creativity to see what they you know because everybody has brings creativity to this to this crisis um and uh and so and of course you know i'll i'll try to influence them i'll show them educate i guess uh, show them places um in our beautiful province of where things are can be improved uh where things i think have gone wrong um and and i'm hoping that it will bring great awareness to everybody of of how we can do a better job with this um and and yeah i i think it it could be extremely impactful i think that it can bring a great deal of hope for us to to make the changes that we need but it doesn't it's like let's not just wait for the film let's keep going right we've got to keep going and trying to pressure for better for a better way for for change Wonderful. Suzanne Samard, thank you so much for being here. And I'll remind everybody her new book, which is going to be made into a motion picture, uh, Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest. You can learn more about uh, Suzanne's work at mothertreeproject.org. And uh, again, this is the Banyan Books and Sound podcast. We're in conversation today with Suzanne Samard. A big thank you to the Banyan Books community who have been so supportive over the years. A big thank you to Jacob Steele, who produces all of Banyan's events, all of these wonderful free programs that uh, everybody gets to participate in. And a reminder, please uh, support Banyan Books to keep these kinds of programs going. Our website is banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. Again, Suzanne, a big thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Ross. Thank you so much. And thanks, Jacob, too. And Banyan Books, thank you so much.